Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. If you love the games, we are the show for you. Each week we share stories from the athletes and people behind the scenes to help you have more fun watching the games. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you? I don't have to call you Ethel this week, right? You do not have to call me Ethel this week, but the broadcasting gods got their revenge on me. I made fun of Bob Costas, your imaginary boyfriend, and his pink eye moment back at 2014 at the Sochi Winter Olympics, and I promptly got a sinus eye connecting infection, which meant lots of interesting things were coming out of my eyes and swelling and discharge. So Bob Costas, I apologize for making fun of you. Please make this stop. Well, I do hope it gets better. And let that be a lesson. You can't say anything bad about my Trico. Oh, never. <laughs> Not my new boyfriend. My hair will fall out. <laughs> I actually adore the and, and we talked about this both during Beijing and Tokyo. I was very impressed with Mike Tirico's job. He did. He stepped into the role. I mean, Bob Costas left really big shoes to fill here at NBC. And Mike Tirico really filled them well he has done just an amazing job it just it's been seamless changing and hosts and we all and no matter what country you're in you have that announcer who's been doing the olympics for decades and that's your person and when they leave it's it can be shocking and mike tarico to his credit did not make that a hard transition at all so hats off to you mike speaking of commentators we are back today with OBS commentator Ali Hogbin. This time we are talking about his experiences covering the Rio Olympics, the Tokyo Olympics, and the Paralympics in Tokyo, as well as the Beijing Olympics. Take a listen. Now for Tokyo and Beijing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> very, very different situations. So what was your experience? Let's start with Tokyo. Well, I've got to take my hat off to Japan for how it did that games. Because I think it was absolutely remarkable. Just to experience it on a minute day-to-day level, every tiny... I mean, just organising an Olympic Games, it's got to be one of the single hardest things to do anyway. And then to do it with these unique circumstances. I think what struck me was the will to do it, was the will to, to make it happen. The local staff were unbelievable in Tokyo, the friendliness. The, I mean, Japan's a, a second home to me. It's the first place I lived as an adult anyway after leaving school. So I very much think of it as a, the place I grew up. And Tokyo is a very special city to me. So I, I will have a, naturally a bias towards it anyway. But I remember arriving at the hotel and we all knew that we were going to be in this hotel for 14 days without being able to, to actually even just step outside other than to go in the bus. And it was clear that the hotel staff were going to do everything they possibly could to stop us going mad. 
<laughs> you know, that they were so kind and caring. And that was the overwhelming feeling I got. I was there for 53 days for the Olympics and, and Paralympics. And I'll never forget, I was one of the lucky people. I actually went to the opening ceremony. I was one of probably what felt like about half a dozen spectators because the International Gymnastics Federation had given me one of their, literally one of their two tickets to go and watch it. And I remember arriving on the buses, taking people, taking the media to the ceremony. And the streets were lined with people holding up banners saying, welcome to Japan. We're so happy to see you. Things like that. It was, it was absolutely lovely. It was a totally different Olympics from the games I thought it was going to be. But I think it's one of the greatest triumphs of willpower and organisation in the history of the Olympics to have made it happen. Yeah, Beijing was a different experience because I was mainly in the venue, in one venue. So it was I very rarely went to the, the International Broadcast Centre and the main Olympic Park. It was literally hotel venue, hotel venue, hotel venue. And that's where your team of people becomes essential. Um, I had a really great crew of people I was working with and we just, we got on fabulously and there was just an awful lot of laughter. And that's kind of the most important thing. And and, and I'll just say one last thing, actually, which is uh, I think this is really important to say as somebody who's worked on these games. I was lucky, firstly, because I was still alive. And I've always taken that approach with anything to do with the pandemic, any restriction to my movement, any daily testing where you get the the thing jabbed in your nose and, you know, your eyes start watering and you just stop and you think, yeah, but I'm alive. I'm alive and I'm still working and I'm at the Olympic Games and there is nothing you can do to me that is going to make me forget that I'm in a privileged position. So first time doing figure skating, not an easy sport to announce and commentate and follow. A lot of complications. So what was that like? Do you know, I absolutely adored it. I just loved it so much. It was obviously no accident that I was given it because nothing's ever an accident with OBS. You don't give people sports if you don't think they can handle them. And I was really flattered to be asked to do it. The people that make decisions about allocating commentary at OBS know, obviously, me as an artistic sports person. And they wanted to see how I would apply what I've done in other artistic sports to figure skating. I honestly feel that if you're paired with Belinda Noonan, you have got to work really hard to mess it up because she's unbelievably knowledgeable, unbelievably knowledgeable, but she's also really nice. She's a lovely, lovely woman, a great, we have become absolutely best buds, Belinda and I, we had such a lovely time working together. I remember, because I'd met her briefly in Pyeongchang, and then we we were sitting on the bus going into the IBC on the first day, and I said something, and she she just started guffawing with laughter. And she said, oh, she said, you're going to make me laugh. We're going to be great. We're going to get on well. And we'd had a lot of chats beforehand. We'd, you know, we'd, we'd been introduced to each other months before the games as, via emails, and we'd, we'd be working together, and we'd, we'd had some uh, Zoom conversations about things, and we'd been in very much in, in constant contact. And I grew in confidence during the games. With my first figure skating broadcast, my aim was just to get in and get out with my reputation still intact. 
because it matters. It's a massive sport, figure skating. It's massive. And, and the people that follow it, follow it with their heart and their soul in, in the way that gymnastics people do. I felt very strongly that I did not want to go in there and be Ollie Hogben, the gymnastics commentator, commentating figure skating. I thought I need people to understand that I am approaching this as Ollie Hogben, the figure skating commentator, if you'll allow me as fans to be regarded that way, you know, being as you you have got to respect the people who devote their lives to this sport. So I just did masses and masses of preparation for it, masses. We have a list of music we never want to hear again on figure skating. (laughs) Have you already developed a few pieces of music you can live without? I remember sending a message to my hero, my commentary hero, who's now my very good friend, Barry Davis. I'm sure it's a name that you have come across. He was the BBC's gymnastics and figure skating commentator for many, many years. And I said I sent Barry a text message during the game saying, I've just become a proper figure skating commentator. I've called my first Bolero. And, and he just wrote back, he said, well done, like that. And then I sent him a message a little bit later. I said, I've commentated quite a lot of boleros now, Barry. Because um, <laughs> I've also, because I've done it in gymnastics as well. It's not, it's not uncommon there. But interestingly, I mean, I actually, I don't care what the choice of music is if the athlete does something with that that turns one's head. That, you know, I, I've seen boleros where I've gone, you know, I think about actually in rhythmic gymnastics, the, the Ukrainian group some years ago, where you go, oh, that's just made me view this piece of music in a totally different way. However, the real issue is not figure skating music, it's victory ceremony music. Because when you are commentating at an Olympics, the thing that gets into your head is the victory ceremony music. That's the one. And some of them are absolutely worse than others I still haven't forgotten the victory ceremony music from the 2015 European Games is right now it's in my head and that's probably massively affected the rest of my day (laughs) so yeah that that's the real issue when you're doing sports that have lots of ceremonies figure skating pools didn't have lots of ceremonies but if you're doing something like what, what would be a good example wrestling had lots of victory ceremonies then that that thing gets stuck in your head before we get away from Bolero I want yes. to ask a little bit about Camilla Valieva in Beijing yeah. and what that experience was like doing the ladies figure skating when you know this whole issue is happening. Yeah, it would be absurd not to ask me about it. I think it's probably the hardest 24 to 48 hours of my career, actually, because I was aware of an enormous storm brewing. And something I was aware of was needing to perform what I believe are the sacred duties of a a commentator. And one of them is to state fact and not opinion. When it comes to these sorts of issues, I think it's really important that you tell people what has happened, what is in progress, and that's it. And I have always believed there's an important distinction to be made between the studio and the live broadcast of the sport itself. In the studio... If you've got a presenter and two or three guests, they can talk about what they like. They can speculate. They can analyze because that is that is not time permanent. It's time temporary. When you go back and watch the actual coverage of the action, all of that won't be there. 
But everything I say as a commentator is tied directly to the movements of the athlete, the athlete in the picture in front of me. Everything I say about the athlete has got to be something that can stand the test of time. And that means as a commentator, you cannot say what you do not know. You can simply say what has happened. And I had wording very carefully chosen for what had happened. And that was all I could say. But there's also a human side to you as well. Because naturally, the whole thing took on a different dimension when everything went so horrifically for her in the free skate. And I made a judgment, which is that I was going to remind people that this was a 15-year-old. And I said at the end of her free program, whatever the circumstances, whatever the outcome, Camilla Valieva is a human being and a very young one. Because I felt it was important to not engage in a pylon. I don't feel that's my place as a sports commentator to do that. And I have, there's a phrase I've always believed, which is to try to let a human being leave with their dignity as best as possible. But I knew whatever I said, some people would agree with that, some people wouldn't agree with that, because it's too emotive an issue to not divide people. And I don't think there's necessarily a right or a wrong way to handle it. I felt very nervous going into that broadcast. I felt very relieved when it was over. And we had word from top down saying, well done. We had, you know, at the end of it, the more than just our producer came on and said, you know, into our ears and said, you did that really well, both of you, well done. Because they knew it it was difficult. Yeah, it was a tricky one. It was a very tricky one. Sort of along the same lines of kind of cataclysmic events for games. What did you know about the Simone Biles situation in Tokyo? Absolutely nothing. And I'll tell you why. Because this is an absolutely ridiculous story, this. So I was commentating the wrestling at the time. I wasn't um, working on, on the gymnastics. And I had just finished a broadcast of the wrestling and was heading back from the, I was doing the wrestling in venue with the fantastic Neil Adams, amazing co-commentator. And I got on literally the only bus in the entire time I was at the Olympic Games that didn't have any Wi-Fi. Literally the only one. And it was a long journey and the traffic was bad. It was about, the journey lasted almost literally the entire length of the women's team final. And I got off the bus, arrived at the uh, the hotel and my phone went there were just so many messages, so many messages. And most of them actually were from British people going, oh my God, the British women's team has just won a bronze medal. So to go back and take stock of it, I mean, you can imagine what it was like scrolling through all of this, this sort of information about what, what had happened in that team competition. I knew nothing of it until after it had happened. It's one of those funny things when you're working on the Olympics. I always say this to people, that, and you will know this from your extensive time at the Games, you don't know what's happening at the Olympics because you're too busy being at the Olympics. You, you sort of get in the thing you're covering and then the rest of it you don't notice. All of the, the Olympic gymnastics for me was done you know, in, in September when I got back from the Paralympics and, and actually sat down and watched it all for the first time. But honestly, if ever there's a day to a moment to not have wi-fi for the one time in 53 days literally the only two and a half hour spell in 53 days where i didn't have wi-fi that that was not it 
Did any of what was going on with the mental health conversation trickle over into other sports at all? I'm trying to remember. I'm not sure. I mean, we, we it was discussed naturally just, you know, a, a, among us as commentators and, you know, because you, you can't not chat about all the big news from the games. But one of the things that's quite important when you're commentating for OBS is that you kind of keep to your own sport. One of the things that's really and importantly impressed upon us when we we work for OBS is you never know what order people are showing things in on their their channels. So the the thing you never want to do as an OBS commentator is blow the outcome of something that hasn't been shown yet. So that's why when you're listening, there's a great thing for all, all of your listeners, actually, when you're listening to the world feed, the MDS for, for OBS, one of the ways you'll know that you're listening to that is at the start of it, you will not hear a time-stamped introduction. You will not hear good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. You'll hear hello. That's your classic world feed indicator. Because obviously, if I'm commentating for Eurosport in the UK, and it's going out at 7pm, I'll say good evening and welcome to dot, dot, dot. But I don't know what time people are watching it in Vanuatu and what time they're watching it in Nicaragua. And consequently, I cannot timestamp things. And it's the same with sport. And there have been instances where TV channels have chosen to show things in an odd order. And unfortunately, you know, you, you do it with the best will in the world. It's like, you know, and, and um, what a fascinating day. It's been in the football competition, especially after the 3-0 win earlier this morning for so-and-so. And that's the next game on the channel. And you've just ruined it for an entire country who are about to watch it, not realising it, it had already happened. So uh, you, you tend to not find much bleed over from sport to sport because we're trying not to impinge on other sports coverage, if that makes sense. It does. You know, one of the other things we talked a lot about, especially during Tokyo, was who on the feed was commentating because OBS, you don't really say who you are either. You don't do introductions. Why is that? And how can we figure out now? Now, yeah. How can we figure <laughs> out who's commentating? I.e., do we have an inside line now? Well, it certainly won't be me because I struggle just to know what I'm commentating at the games. <laughs> I, I, I struggle with my own. Just, just I'm happy once I've got my own schedule sorted out. You know, that, that's actually that's the single first bit of preparation I do. You know, uh, Jill, for every multi-sport games, is I just do a, a a diary for myself, and that's a real nerve calming first moment to make my own little diary. We don't identify ourselves. It is very much the way of things with, with OBS, partly because you'll find that OBS commentators really don't think that they are important enough to identify themselves. We, we really, like, we sort of take the view of, you know, it's, it's about the sport and not about us, but also because different channels have different perceptions of that. So in, in, in some countries, it's very standard to introduce yourself by name at the start. And in a lot of other countries, it isn't they'll do it through a graphic. So we're, we're, we're sort of told that, you know, if the broadcaster wants to flash our name up, they'll do so. But, but avoid at the start saying who we are. But equally, you know, if you've got they always say, you know, when you've got an expert next, you please obviously say who that expert is. I'm obviously going to say joining me is Belinda Noonan or Neil Adams, two-time Olympic silver medalist or, or, or whatever. That's that's a different matter entirely. But 
I suppose my view is who who gives a damn who Ollie Hogben is. You know that you're here to watch the Olympics, and if there's a if there's a real expert alongside me, let's get that expert's credibility in, and, and I'll just stay out the way in the corner. <laughs> Don't underestimate our fans. We do a lot of feed talk. <laughs> a lot so, of feed talk. A lot of feed talk. So talk about getting your schedule in order. I know it's not official for 2024, but what are you excited for, even just as a fan? Oh gosh. Well, I'm uh, I can't go into whether I'll be there and what I'll be doing, but I'm looking forward very much to to the games. I am what am I excited about? Look, Paris is one of the great sporting cities. As we all know, Parisian fans are known for their calm, quiet way of watching sport. <laughs> you know, it's the atmosphere is going to be fabulous. Absolutely fabulous in, in the venues. I think that will be lovely actually. That is one of the main things I'm I'm looking forward to. What's the most challenging sport that you've had to commentate for you personally? Is this Jill specifically at the Olympics or just no, at no, all? in general? Because you've done like some sports mm. that are very like tied to a country or to a region or something like that. Yes, and actually, I think the one I will say is Penchak Silat, which is um, an Indonesian martial art that I commentated at the Asian Games in 2018. And the Asian Games were in Jakarta, Palembang, so uh, it was on the program for that reason. The reason it was the hardest thing I've had to commentate is because you cannot find a rule book in the English language for Penchaxilat. So what you've got to do is go on lots of information that you find on people's YouTube channels, fan blogs and things. You've got to really delve into the fan-created content. And you know what? Let's be honest. Often the fan-created content is better than the official content. We, we all know that. I know where I go to get a lot of my information for, for a lot of the sports I commentate. And the first place I go is a fan-created resource, not an official one. Because the fan-created resource is created by somebody who's not paid to do it, but has a love for doing it. And I think love for doing it very often beats the end of the month paycheck for level of detail and attention to detail. So I, I had to piece it together. But Normally, when you commentate a martial art, like the first, I've done a lot of martial arts. And the first thing I do whenever I commentate any martial art is I learn the referee signals. And I, I get them and I take screenshots of all the referee signals and put them on a single sheet of paper so that I know straight away when the referee brings their arm down in a diagonal motion, that means whatever, Wazari or, or something. But you can't do that for Penchak Salat. So basically, somebody kicks somebody and you, you just you don't know how many points are going to be awarded. So it's a really tough thing to, to navigate through because it's the most I've ever felt like I'm really going unaware into a sport. Oh, that and at those same games, I did six hours of 10 pin bowling from a studio and there were no score graphics. So I was manually scoring the 10 pin bowling myself on a piece of paper and it was a 23 team competition. <laughs> So, yes. But the funny thing is, you know, you earn your stripes doing that. That broadcast actually cemented my reputation with the company I was working on it with. I found out the following day that people had been in the bar that night and the, the main producer was going, you know, and, and Ollie actually got through it and he made it entertaining. He made it watchable. And, and so you almost, in a weird way, you gain more of a reputation by handling the really tricky stuff than, than just sort of getting through the routine things. So um, now it's just, well, we'll just throw Ollie in. He can commentate anything. Well, there is an element of that, yeah. And I, I do get told that a lot. It's why I get picked for so many multi-sport games, because people know they can drop me in on anything. 
and I will hopefully not perjure myself or, or say something disgraceful that, that you know, I, I think it, you've got to respect every single sport. I, I say this to every commentator that I, new commentator I work with, treat every sport when you work on it, that's the most important sport in the world. It's never just a thing you're doing ever because the people watching it to a lot of those people, it is the most important thing in the world. They won't expect you to be perfect, but they will expect you to treat their sport with respect. And that that's the thing that matters most of all. Problems arise when a commentator goes in thinking, oh, well, it, it's kind of like dot, 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 another thing I do. Or, well, you know, it's only an hour, so whatever. You, you've got to not let yourself get into that mentality as, as, a, as a broadcaster. How do you keep on top of rule changes or like significant developments in a sport if you commentate it infrequently? This, what a weird start to the answer this will be, Jill. The answer is you don't. You wait until you next commentate it and then you jump in for rule changes. If you try to keep up, there, there are some sports I commentate, you know, on an almost weekly basis. and There are some things I commentate once every two or three years. If you try to, to follow all rule changes, you'll just go down a, a rabbit warren of despair with just too much information. The best thing to do absolutely is wait until you next commentate it and then start with what's changed. And usually you will be taken to a fan run site that has a summary of changes or a YouTube video or your email. You, you, you get to know people in international federations and governing bodies and you message them. And you just say, listen, just really quickly, have any rules changed since 2021 or, or, or whatever? It really is one of those things you have to handle it on a need to know basis. I think my new favorite phrase is going to be the rabbit warren of despair. <laughs> yes, I, I, I believe I've just coined that, actually. That should be my autobiography title, actually, I think. It, it's, yes. the, the, the previous one that I've gone with for a long time is Who the Hell is Ollie Hogben? And the reason I think that should be my, my that, that comes from my first Olympics. And it comes from, we were talking about that the weird thing about being world feed commentators is that you pop up all over the place. You just, I very seldom ever know who, and you'll, you'll know this as, as, as experts on the Olympics, you'll know that you just, you'll suddenly hear, oh yeah, it's them again. Still don't know their name, but I know them. And uh, I was reflecting on the fact that I, my first ever OBS tennis commentary was the ladies semi-final at Rio in, in the, the, yeah, exactly. Angelique Kerber versus Madison Keys. And it went out live on BBC One. And obviously, you know, this was just after Wimbledon. So the BBC wasn't using any of its established tennis commentators because they'd all just been chock a block going into Wimbledon or coming out of Wimbledon. So it went out with my commentary. And I just, we were, I was laughing about it that night in, in the bar with some of my colleagues. I just imagined all these people on BBC One as, you know, Claire Balding says, and now uh, we're going to join your commentator for this match, Ollie Hogben. And just this, an entire nation going, who the hell is Ollie Hogben? <laughs> and I just thought that that's the autobiography title. Maybe it should now be the Rabbit Warren of Despair. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, as we have read many an Olympic book, you need the, the it's the Rabbit Warren of Despair, colon, who the hell is Ollie Yes. Oh, we've got it now. That's it. <laughs> I'm going to go and uh, trademark that straight away. What sports have surprised you as you've commentated them or picked them up along the way? 
I'll give you a proper answer in a second, but my simple answer is actually every sport because there's always something. There's always something that grabs you in, in, in every sport. Ah, yes. Now, it's not an Olympic sport, but the, the most recent one that comes to mind is indoor rowing. I commentated indoor rowing at the Invictus Games. Oh, what an event the Invictus Games was to work on last year. I'm thrilled I've been invited to do it again this year. And it was one of the most moving sporting events I've ever ever encountered the culture of a fair play of you know we talk about the great olympic ethos of you know it's not not the the winning but the the taking part you see it at the invictus games it's fantastic the the way that just national barriers and boundaries are torn down as competitors take care of each other respect each other oh it's it's wonderful and i did indoor rowing there and indoor rowing is basically just lots of rowing machines all lined up and people start rowing and there's a on the top left graphic in, in the corner of the screen, you just have a constantly updating leaderboard of who's in the lead and by how much. It is mesmerizing because all the broadcast is, is lots of people with extremely sweaty, agonized, painful faces straining hard with the veins in their foreheads as they, they go up or down on a leaderboard and the clock counts down. He's brilliant. And all you have to do is just get really excited, tell people what's happening and shout at the end. It was amazing. And at the end of it, we all said, the whole production team, we all just went, oh, my God, that was incredible to work on. You know, and I know straight away the next Invictus Games, I'm going to say, please, 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 can you put me on the indoor rowing? Because it was it, it was just so spellbinding. That really came out of nowhere for me as a, as a wonderful sport to work on. I felt a similar way about short track speed skating, you know, although I'd watched that quite a lot. So I, I think indoor rowing is probably the one that stays with me because I'd never watched it before prepping for it for, for the Invictus Games. Do you have any other inside tips for listeners or watchers of sport when they're thinking about the commentators? It, not so much a tip, but I would say remember the Olympic ring syndrome is a very real thing. The co-commentator I've spoken about earlier, Neil Adams, he talks about Olympic tunnel syndrome, where the moment you're about to actually walk out as an athlete onto the field of play, something hits you about the fact that this is different. It doesn't matter that you know how to win. This is different. And every commentator, to some degree, at some point in their life, has been hit by Olympic ring syndrome, where you know how to commentate, you know what you're doing, but this is different. It's those blasted rings. They have weird effects on people. They, they really do. And all of us, when we're out there doing it, we carry with us the self-imposed pressure of trying to get it right. Because we all know that this is our biggest audience. And we all know how much the Olympics means to everybody. And we, we, I'm so conscious whenever I commentate that everything I say, this is what the athlete will show to their children, to their grandchildren to their loved ones. It's this right now, this, whatever I'm saying now is going to be what accompanies that moment that they show their nearest and dearest. And it matters so much to us to get it right. And usually when we don't, we've started kicking ourselves long before anyone else starts kicking us because there's no feeling that that gets to you more than feeling you've messed up something at the Olympic Games. 
that that you you've you've got you've misplaced a word you've got a fact wrong you know something like that you really you get so annoyed with yourself when you do it yeah and and I think I would just say to everyone that we um we know we know when we get it wrong and in advance we're sorry <laughs> so, so there, there we go I'll, I'll just apologize now for everything I do wrong in Paris and beyond <laughs> I'll get my preemptive apologies in but but actually also we love having your friendship we love having we love having the company of absolutely passionate sports fans it's just the best thing in the world and you know those kind messages that we get every now and then when people contact me through my website and, and say oh, I've been listening to you in in Canada and, and loved your commentary or they, they message on Twitter it means the world like when you get that and you're you're on the media bus back at 11 o'clock and you know you've got to be up at 4am to get the media bus back again you get that message it, it lifts you enormously so so thank you for, for all of those lovely comments well I can tell you from our listeners when we realized it was you on a feed we always felt so much better we knew we were in good hands thank you that that means an enormous amount actually because the thing I want most of all is I just want people to be able to watch the sport and not worry I don't want to ever get in the way of it you know, I, I just, as a good commentator, you should aim to just let people have fun and help them have fun more easily rather than be a distraction to their enjoyment. The Olympics is too precious a thing to ruin for people. No, I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Ollie, thank you so much for spending time with us and pulling back the curtain on what goes on behind the scenes in the feeds. We really appreciate it absolute pleasure and, and thank you so much for your your splendid podcast because um you know we th there, there are few things that are as worth getting incredibly excited about as the olympic games it, it's it must always feel special and the great thing about the olympics of course is that it's always it's always an evolving thing isn't it commentators come and go sports come and go host cities come and go but at the heart of it it's still that that wonderful thing every four years that, that gives us so much pleasure. Thank you so much, Ollie. Follow Ollie on social. He is on Twitter and Instagram at Ollie Hogbin, and his website is oliehogbin.com, and we will have links to all of those in the show notes. That sound means it is time for our history moment. All year long, we are looking at the Seoul 1988 Games as it is the 35th anniversary of those games. Allison, it is your turn for a story. What do you got for us? I'm talking NBC coverage. We have all kinds of segues here. So NBC broadcast the Olympics in Seoul for the first time since Sapporo 1972. Wow. And the Summer Games for the first time since 1964. Wow, because then we had, it was ABC the whole time, right? Because that was the Jim McKay era. Correct, correct. And before that was mostly CBS. So 88 begins the stranglehold that NBC has on the Olympic broadcasting, still to this day in the United States. So Bryant Gumbel was the primetime host. Jane Pauley manned the desk in the early morning. And for the first time for the late night coverage, Bob Costas was at the desk. Doing like the junior job, right? Exactly, exactly. While reviews at the time called the coverage solid, it was not seen as a particularly successful broadcast. Ratings were low, attributed both to the time difference, so there's not a lot of live events, 
and the lack of success of the U.S. team, not one of America's better outings at a summer Hmm. games. So many critics also said that the games themselves lacked glamour, that the Koreans had kept it a little too low key and not flashy enough. Really? You know what it didn't lack? Controversy. (gasps) Tell me more. Many Koreans were insulted by the coverage that NBC produced because all those package stories focused on things like sweatshops, prostitution, (gasps) urban poverty, overseas adoptions, which were huge in the 70s and 80s, and relations with North Korea. But things really got bad when Korean boxer Byung Jong-il lost a match and his team and security guards rushed into the ring and beat the New Zealand referee. Oh my gosh. NBC covered this event extensively, but ignored other incidents involving theft and pranks by American athletes. Oh, kind of like the uh, Ryan Lochte affair from 2016. Exactly. NBC staffers also insulted their hosts when they had shirts made depicting two boxers superimposed on the Korean flag with the caption, Chaos Tour 88. Oh my gosh. And Koreans perceived this as a deep insult to their flag. Things got so bad that South Korean President Ro Tae-woo visited the main press center and met with NBC staff. Whoa! So that calmed the immediate furor, but many activists used this anti-American sentiment generated by all these perceived slights by NBC to push for reducing American influence on the Korean peninsula, especially limiting military personnel. And throughout the 90s, we see a reduction in American personnel allowed in Korea. So thanks, NBC. Whoa. I mean, this is this how the Mary Carrillo stories got started? I wonder. It would have been the correct era. I would have loved to have seen her piece on prostitution and sweatshops. <laughs> I cannot believe that that's what they chose to go with in highlighting the culture of the country. Whoa. So I think a lot of those were airing as part of NBC Nightly News rather than on the Olympic broadcast themselves. However, the Koreans were not splitting hairs. NBC was doing this, and this is how it was broadcasting their country to the United States. Wow. So, And then whenever you bring in, how are things with your northern neighbors? Things get hairy. Wow. Just wow. Interesting. Oh, I, I just, I'm kind of flabbergasted by the whole thing. And it's amazing that NBC still keeps going today. Welcome to Shukflistan. It is the time of the show where we check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests of the show and listeners uh, who make up our citizenship of Shukflistan, our very own country. First off. Congratulations to Phil Andrews, who is the CEO of USA Fencing, who was also elected to the Sports ETA Board of Directors. And last week we mentioned he had done that fundraiser with Fence with Phil. That's right. Over 200 people (gasps) came out to touch him. Wow. So it was a huge success. And he came away not poked to death. So, Well, that's good. (laughs) 
And one more piece of Magnificent Seven news. They've released the cast album, and it's available on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon Music, and basically anywhere you can get some music streamed. Competing this weekend, Stephanie Robel and Maggie Shea will be sailing in the French Olympic Week Regatta in Ere. Boccia player Allison Levine is competing in the Montreal World Cup in the individual and pairs competitions, and she has been posting her schedule on her Instagram account. Oh, excellent. So we'll look for that and be cheering for you. And beach volleyball player Kelly Chang and her partner Sarah Hughes are competing at the Elite 16 Beach Volleyball event in Uberlandia, Brazil. We have some news from Paris 2024. Do we know what boat is in French yet? I haven't come up to that in Duolingo. Neither have I. And I am behind you. Although I'm starting to get to words that I could use. <laughs> so that is helpful. Je voudrais le. <laughs> no, I've, I've learned to say il y a un chien to you oh. in my mind in Paris. There's a dog. <laughs> That's all I need. That's all I need. But speaking of water and river and boats... Yes. So Paris 2024 has revealed that they are going to be using a total of 116 boats to carry athletes along the six kilometer stretch of the Seine next year for the opening ceremony, which they are pulling in boats from all over the region, not just Paris. It's pretty amazing when when they talk about how many boat owners have offered to let them use their boats. So this opening ceremony the magnitude of it is still something that will i think amaze us i'm trying to figure out where the ceremony elements are going to be because there are a lot of people talking about that yeah a lot of people have mentioned in ken hanscom's facebook group about should i get tickets for the opening ceremony because where are they going to light the cauldron where are we going to have the flags and all the oaths and those pieces and is it going to be worth it to buy the tickets for that? But of course, they're not going to announce that because that's part of the surprise. Right. And you still, I still expect that there would be some element of production and a story. This parade of nations that will just happen along the Seine is going to happen kind of independently, I think, of the ceremonies themselves. Will the athletes get to go into the stadium as well or wherever they land? Or is right. it just like you you wave all along the river and then when you're done, you're done? Right. And I have to look at the map again to see where the stadium is in relation to where the six kilometer route is. Or will they be transporting them and what part are they seeing? And this is logistics on a level that they have not done. For an opening ceremony before. No. So this will be interesting to see how they pulled this off. And it will be, wow, we did it. That was amazing. It all worked. It was very cool. Or it will or, be, wow, <laughs> that was interesting. Let's never do that again. <laughs> but I do love the idea that they have that parade along the Seine and people don't have to buy tickets. You know, you can just pop a squat on a square of grass and I'm very interested to see how that pans out with security and crowd control and getting people around 
will that actually be that fun camping out on a Sunday atmosphere or will it just be chaos? Right. And if they set up maybe bleachers along the way, will you be buying a spot to sit in the bleachers or are there going to be free spots that you just come and get? And is it going to be people camp out for a week in order to get these spots? Who knows? It'll, it's just, we've never seen this before. It's going to be kind of amazing. Also amazing is the fact that 4 million people have signed up for tickets for the second phase of the ticket lottery. This starts uh, relatively soon in May. There are only 1.5 million tickets for sale in phase two of this ticket lottery. So do a little basic math. Not everybody is going to get tickets in this round. And it will be also interesting. And this we want to hear from people because we can't even see what's available until you get chosen is what's available. What sports are you not seeing? You know, because this round does have opening and closing ceremonies. But as we heard in the first round, some sports weren't even there or they were there for a very short period of time or there was only one class of ticket. So it'll be interesting to see how they're dribbling these out. Exactly. And this is not the end of the ticket sales. There will be phase three that will be at the end of 2023 and that will have 3.25 million tickets. And I also wonder if, you know, sponsors get a ton of tickets. Will sponsors use all of those tickets? Don't know. When do they get put on the market? Or if they do get put on the market, is that something that goes into the resale area? Who knows? It's all wait and see. But as, as Ken Hanscom has told us time and time again, marathon, not a sprint. And you can show up and still buy tickets. There will be people who literally couldn't get the day off who will then sell their ticket. And that's the one nice thing how Paris is doing it without that country coding where only the Americans got these tickets and Europeans got those tickets. It's much, the resale I think is going to be a much smoother process and people are going to be able to do that more easily. I agree with you. I think the online resale hub along with the fact that you cannot sell them for higher than face value, that will be just so much nicer than dealing with people selling them on the streets or what have you, because hopefully that keeps it everything fair. So that's good. Tickets for the Paralympics are due to go on sale October 4th. There will be 3 million tickets available in that sale. Very excited about that. Also, Hotel-wise, you know, this is another issue. The Parisian reported and Inside the Games noted that Airbnb demand is planning to be up for Paris. So Really? (laughs) You know, we do a lot of reading and reporting and reading of studies. And this is definitely one of those things where you say to yourself, somebody felt the need to write that article. Right. (laughs) Of course, demand is going to be up. And the other thing the article noted is that the cost for Airbnb is going to be much higher than in the summer of 2023, to which I also say, really? So we'll see. I mean, there are a lot of people also on the uh, the Ken Hanscom Facebook planning group who said, oh, we waited for our hotel for London 2012. This one pops out in my head. Waited for the hotel until just before we went and the demand that the hotels 
anticipated, so they raised their rates, never occurred, so they had to drop their rates again. And people were able to snap up reasonable hotel rooms. And then we heard about Tokyo before that got canceled, where people booked Airbnbs way in advance. And then all of a sudden, the hosts went, oh, that's the Olympics. We're going to make a fortune. So we're going to cancel your reservation, and then we're going to jack up the price. So don't know. I mean, we are trying to plan our own accommodations. And the scary thing for us about trying to get an Airbnb, which we would love to have our very own apartment, is the fact that some host could do this. It's not guaranteed. Then, And people have already mentioned that they tried to book, contacted the hosts, reminded them that it was the Olympics, booked, and then a week later, the host canceled. So given that Airbnb is actually an Olympic sponsor, <laughs> which made the hotel chains so happy, it will be interesting. And I say interesting because I don't want to use the actual word because we're a G-rated show. You know these hosts are going to cancel and keep jacking up mm-hmm. the prices until they max out. So I think you're going to end up on the one hand, with a lot of tickets and resale because people could get hotel rooms. That could very well be the thing. But on the other hand, I think we're going to end up with a lot of empty hotel rooms at the last minute or a lot of empty Airbnbs because the host got greedy. And then, so I think depending on your level of risk tolerance, you will end up finding someplace to stay, whether you book very far or book very close, depending on how much energy you want to put into it. Right. So if you need the confidence that you will have a place to stay, also know that it comes with the risk of possibly paying a high price if you want to wait and maybe the prices will go down. Maybe the prices will go down or maybe there are no rooms. So it's really, it's a toss up anyway. And as we are discovering, as we're trying to do our press reservations, the rooms are very small. Make sure you work out all your issues before you go, because you will be in close quarters. (laughs) Jill and I will be going to couples therapy ahead of time. (laughs) I just think we got our segment for Paris. (laughs) It's close quarters with Jill and Allison. (laughs) Today. Where did you put the soap? Yeah, it's, (laughs) it'll be interesting. I think we'll have some interesting stories coming up. I mean, the rooms are tiny. I am not, I have not done, you've done much more traveling in Europe than I have. I have done almost no traveling in Europe. And what traveling in Europe I did was paid for by somebody else. So I got to go on a better dime. So this is going to be a a unique experience for me. Well, it'll be fun. Something to look forward to, right, listeners? So that will do it for this week. Let us know your favorite moments in commentary or if you remember what NBC broadcast in 1988 We want to hear that too. You can email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Our social handle is at flamealivepod. Be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. And don't forget to get our weekly newsletter filled with other fun stories about this week's episode. You can sign up for that at flamealivepod.com. 
Next week, oh, this is exciting because we are taking something off of the list. We are talking sitting volleyball, and our guest will be five-time Paralympian Laura Webster. We'll be talking about how the game works and also what it was like to compete while pregnant. So be sure to join us for that. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. <laughs>